Hi everybody, a very big welcome. Thank you for being with us at Emmanuel. Uh, thank you for joining us at Shoreham, at North Hove, at South Hove and at the Clarendon Centre. We're in the book of Hebrews today. We're starting chapter two. We started chapter one last week. We're just looking at these two chapters, in fact, during these Advent Sundays. So as we build up to Christmas, we thought we'd take some time in this very special section of the Bible. Before we get to that though, uh, a quick message to Emmanuel people. Uh, if you're new or you're a guest amongst us, you, you just listen in, but this is a bit of a newsy thing. Um, we've been praying, thinking a lot as a, a team of leaders over recent months about the, the, the need that we, that we sense under the surface in the church for concentrated time for us to gather um, specifically, intentionally, to get, just to be with the Lord, uh, waiting on him, worshipping him from across all of our four locations uh, for specific occasions that will really help us in a couple of key ways. We're aware, first of all, that there's a general uh, sense of need on an individual, personal level. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I, I, I'm aware all the time of my longing to just receive strength and encouragement and help from God uh, at all stages. And I think COVID is for, for so many of us, uh, brought us to a point of feeling our need for strengthening, for muscling up or fattening up or, or call it what you like, just, uh, you know, a refreshment in our health spiritually. And to do that together, to draw near to God in worship and hearing from him and receiving from him together will, I think, be enormously beneficial to us as individual people in the church. But also, secondly, just for us as a church together, uh, this is a bit of a crossroads season coming out of COVID, we, we, we trust, uh, in the season to come. There are a great many things that we still feel we want to get right. We need God's wisdom and help about. We're, we're seeking his face for answers, for big decisions that we will have to make in the coming season. And uh, we believe that it's always highly appropriate for us as a church to seek him at those times. Uh, not to run away with our ideas, but to pause and wait on him for direction, for wisdom, and for help. And we, we've known that in our story, the whole church being part of this adventure together, the journey together, not just leaders, but the whole church being part of the process of watching to see what God will do, how he'll answer our prayers, and, and, and moving on together. So we want to create time to do that, but we're also aware that we have busy lives and a fairly full church program. So the only way that we, we considered it possible for us to make adequate space to really gather was to actually kind of peel back a little bit, to strip down in the spring season, in the spring term. And so from January, what we're doing is actually closing small groups. We won't have small groups for a stretch. I don't mean for the whole year, just for a few weeks. And this is our way of trying to say to God, we mean it, we're serious. We want to pause and we want to draw near to you together. And we'll gather at the Clarendon Centre on Thursday evenings at the Clarendon Centre from all of our different locations just for a season, starting on the 6th of January and going right through. And uh, we'll keep doing several other things. We'll not stop doing Sundays. Uh, we'll certainly not stop doing Alpha. We'll not stop doing care in terms of the projects we're, we're involved with to serve the, the disadvantaged in our city. We'll not stop doing youth on a Friday night. Uh, but here on Thursday evenings, we hope to gather from all across the church and to help us 
just to draw near to God, to receive from him, to be encouraged, blessed, strengthened, which I believe we will be. I've invited some friends from outside just to help us on that journey. Uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, I've got yeses from some wonderful people. So uh, on the 6th of January, the very first of these, our friend Mike Pilavachi, who some of you will know, a, a globally loved and known uh, godly leader who has, I think, led thousands of people to Jesus and helped many people come into uh, greater knowledge and uh, enjoyment of God by his Holy Spirit. And just a wonderful man who walks with God and brings the presence of God uh, he'll be with us for the 6th and for the uh, 20th. So uh, two, two sort of Sundays, one after, one after the, spread out by two weeks. But between those, on the 13th and on the 27th, we've got my dad. Uh, so it's Mike, my dad, Mike, my dad. And, uh, and so that's January for us. And they won't come in to, to necessarily do... Uh, sort of a, a series of teaching messages. Uh, I'm sure they will teach, but, but they'll importantly they will lead us into prayer to receive and enjoy the presence of God I'm so glad and I so look forward to introducing you to them if you've not known them and being blessed by the the presence of the Lord himself amongst us by his Holy Spirit that's what I wanted to announce to you just something to look forward to please prioritize it more on that later let's get into Hebrews chapter 2 first four verses Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Maybe you've heard of the parable of the frog in the kettle. Uh, the idea that if you, if you try and put a frog in hot water, it jumps out immediately. But if you put it in uh, room temperature water and then heat it up gradually, it doesn't notice and boils to death. Uh, I have never proved this experiment. I doubt that you have too. We only have hearsay to base it on. Uh, I don't know whoever did this experiment. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of people saying it's, it's, a, it's a myth anyway. But I'm, I, I think it illustrates something real, something very real, and that is that we, we are more, in reality, we are more um, in danger from drift than we are from obvious dangers, obvious threats. Obvious threats are things that we will tend to uh, identify and, uh, if we can, avoid. Uh, things that happen more slowly, we're going to be more likely to succumb to because the subtlety of it is the trick. And this is the reason that people drift out to sea, literally sometimes. People get into serious, it's a, a genuine danger to be subject to drift because the change is so incremental and so subtle and so imperceived that you end up in serious trouble. And, and this is the, the very tone of this warning that's been given us in these, these four verses. It's that we've got to, we've got to uh, play closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift, lest we drift away from it. The people that this writer is, is sending the letter to are in danger of drifting into what he also calls neglect, neglecting what they have, what they've heard. And 
You might think or, or expect that the threat, therefore, the danger, the thing that he's seen is a, you know, there's some particular kind of you know, headline-grabbing criminal activity. You know, maybe they, 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 they're Christians, but they're being tempted to go and rob banks, or they're tempted to, to, to you know, I don't know, squander all their money at the casino. That's what, and that the writer's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't drift into those kinds of terrible, that sort of devilry. Don't drift into debauchery. Actually, the, the, the writer doesn't have that in mind with these people. If you read the, the whole letter to the Hebrews, you, you realise quickly the thing that they are in danger of drifting into, rather, is not, is not conventional wickedness, but it's actually religion. It's religion that they're in danger of drifting away from Jesus and towards. And that might sound strange to, to many of us. How can, it, how can there be a difference between Jesus and religion? But really, that's the whole point of this letter to the Hebrews that we have in our Bible. The, the reality, in fact, that the, the message of this whole book is consistent with this important truth <laughs> that, that religion is a pale, lifeless, in fact, deadly substitute for the real power and love of God the life of God that's available and revealed to us only in his son, Jesus Christ. Religion is a, is, is a substitute, effectively. It's not, it's not the real thing, but we are often easily duped into thinking it's the real thing. What religion perhaps could be summarised as is our human attempts to stay on the right side of God by our own Minimum efforts, I suppose, by achieving certain things, by, by being on the correct side of certain standards, whatever stuff that we do, stuff that we observe, rituals that we follow through on, things that we do will see to it that we're safe with God, that we're okay with God, that God and, and, and me, you know, I'm, I think I'm all right because I'm on the right side religiously. It certainly doesn't mean that I want to know God. Religious people don't necessarily like God. They, they don't, they're not drawn towards God himself. God is not the point. It's rather the, the convenience or the safety of being just sort of kept on in his good books. That's, I suppose, the, the essence of religion. We can not quite realise it, but drift into it. And it appeals to us on lots of levels because we can in fact quite like the idea of being good enough, being seen to have a, a moral record that sets us above, that sets us apart and makes us acceptable. I, I'm, I'm in, you know, and it's because I've done well. And it can even create a, a proud self-righteousness, a self-sufficiency, a self-confidence in us, which actually is in the Bible, one of the main obstacles that we will have in getting to know God properly, because our, our pride becomes a, a problem, becomes a barrier. So strange to us, but this is the, the, the target of this writing, saying don't drift into that, that deadness, that, that paleness of lifeless religion. Don't fall back into it, you are meant for what is uniquely greater. You are meant for something so much better.
than that. And these people also, to just fill out the picture a bit and help us even understand and sympathise with them, their, their attraction towards their religious kind of customs and their, in fact specifically their Jewish religious background, also the, the, the attraction appeals to them for a few particular reasons. Let me just quickly list them. First of all, the tangibility of it, the tangibility of it. What I mean by that is that their, their old religious ways were built around a specific place, a specific building, in fact, a, a temple, a place you could go, a space that you could occupy, and, and a priesthood, a, a, a system of rituals and ceremonies and cleansings and washings and sacrifices and offerings of blood and it was, it was very elaborate, it was very specific, it's codified in, in a large chunk of the Old Testament, and it was deeply serious, it was deeply uh, solemn for that culture, that generation, that nation. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they'd abided by it, and it was right there, it was something you could touch and handle, you could be there, you could see the sights, smell the smells, it was tangible. The temple of the Lord. And they'd been, since they met Jesus, brought into a community that didn't have a temple, didn't have that kind of a spiritual HQ as such. It was lacking in some of those more tangible, physical, visible characteristics of religion that we usually, you know, we tend to associate religion, don't we, with buildings, holy places, uh, pilgrimages to uh, statues, uh, holy water, various physical items that help us to feel like oh, this is a spiritual, yeah, I, ooh, I feel very spiritual here. Well, following Jesus had meant that they barely had any of that, really. Not much of that was going on in their new Jesus-centred world. And it was causing many to feel a hankering back for what was more tangible. It felt more real. And times when we go through spiritual deserts where Jesus doesn't seem close, where Jesus doesn't seem real to us, can also be times when anything more tangible in religion or not religion, anything that seems more real, at least I can see it, at least he's right there, that can appeal more, it can certainly appeal in a very powerful way. So secondly, really quickly, that, that there's tangibility. There's also the fact that uh, these guys were, were used to a, a, what, what I could call spiritual. What I mean is an emphasis on angels, a kind of mystical emphasis, which they, they, they had this uh, conviction that the, the law of the Old Testament had been administered, given them through the work of angels. That's why the writer here, he makes reference to what was uh, the message declared by angels previously, that the law was kind of properly overseen, coordinated by servants of God, special, extraordinary, glorious, miraculous, supernatural beings. And there was something about that that appeals to us, isn't there? There's something about... The idea of angels, maybe we find that crazy and mythical, it sounds like you know, elves and goblins, but, but, but listen and think about it in a context where you're aware of spiritual beings. Sometimes you can see them, sometimes you can't, just these glorious ethereal things that, that make the place and the, the context seem more mystical and exciting. That was what the old, it was all administered by angels. And that appeal, it, it gave a sense of significance and importance. And again, I suppose it's the same for us. Spiritual ideas uh, of all kinds, 
that, that can just grab our attention, preoccupy us, and make us think, well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, the Bible's quite interesting, but this spiritual thing, this mystical thing has got my attention a little bit more glued at the moment. And then quickly, third thing, final thing, that, that would have been a, an attraction and a draw factor uh, for these uh, Hebrew Christians that he's writing to is just the simple fact that their, their Judaism, their, their old religious ways that they're drifting back into, would have made them more socially acceptable. They would, have, they would have been in with the people that they used to be in with, family, friends, colleagues. They wouldn't have stuck out so much. They, they felt that following Jesus had made them outsiders. Jesus is the outsider. And for these people growing up with this, uh, this confident sense that not only do I have the God of Israel, the God of Moses, the God of the Old Testament, but I'm in the people of God, the people of Moses, the people of the Old Testament. I belong to this community. I, I am part of it. I'm acceptable in it. I belong in it. I'm respected. I'm received. I'm honoured. I'm entrusted with respect and responsibility in this community. I feel at home in this world, at least, this community. And when they met Jesus, all that had changed. And perhaps at first it had changed dramatically and then if anything, it seems, reading the letter to the Hebrews, it changed further and worse. They were getting in trouble. They were having people seize their, their belongings and throw them out. They were having people throw them in prison. They were going through serious stigma with their previous friends and family, some of them. They, they're going through the, the, the enormous heartbreak of social misalignment, social alienation, feeling, I just don't fit in this world because of what because of Jesus and I can't I can't see Jesus I can't he's 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 gone he's raised from the dead and gone to the father but I don't really know what's going I don't I don't feel the reality he's not so tangible he's not like the temple that I can go to the sacrifices that are still being made I can see the animals and and meanwhile I'm kind of ostracized and marginalized even by my closest Following Jesus will do that in all kinds of ways for us. We won't ever be able to completely avoid that. Following Jesus will in some way for you and me always mean that we're out of step socially in some way. This is one of the reasons that it's hard to become a Christian for many of us. It's why we're struggling. Some of you watching this, you're thinking, I, I know that Jesus is worth considering and I, I kind of want to take him seriously. Maybe you even got to the point where you believe it's basically true. But you're so aware of the, the, the huge step it feels like of, of following him as an outsider so that you become an outsider. And frankly, you're quite right. I'm, I applaud you for getting that point, understanding that you can't follow Jesus and stay in with everybody. You can't have both. Following Jesus means, to some extent, being out of step and somewhat rejected. And even feeling it socially all the time. For that. Because I follow Jesus, the world won't really understand. It's, it's increasingly difficult, I suppose, for Christians because it's not just this, you know, 20 years ago, Christians were seen as quaint, you know, slightly out of date. But increasingly, Christians are seen not just as out of date, but as the enemy, the problem, the cause of trouble. And so you follow Jesus, you're becoming a, a, an unwanted outsider, the target sometimes of... of, of you know, hatred from some people. And you feel that to the point where it's like, this is a burden I would sooner lose. And I'm encouraged to, I, I, I'm attracted, drawn 
enticed, appealed to by safer religion, just a kind of vagueness, or just going back to my old life. Maybe not religion in your case. It may be just going back to your pre-Jesus life. It's less out of steps, less hassly. And you kind of, what, what's the appeal of Jesus now? And that's what the writer wants to help us with. He sees that happening, very aware of what they're going through, and spends this letter of many chapters uh, helping them with that. Let's just look at how, how this writer deals with this for his readers. First of all, the first thing, three things. First of all, presents Jesus again to them. <laughs> he presents Jesus all over again. Jesus as the heart of everything. He insists and he portrays with, with gravity, with drama, with poetry, with a sense of wonder, colour, vibrancy, life, grandeur. He wants his readers to see again the greatness of the one they've come to know. In fact, it's very telling. Even the very first phrase in the, in the first verse here, therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard. To what we have heard. I find that fascinating. Stop and consider what he's saying there. If you were here last Sunday, you'd have heard Toby talk from chapter one about this rich uh, description of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. It's a magnificent message. Please download it if you haven't listened to it already. And, and it's straight after this very verse, first verse of chapter one, where he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God has spoken to us. And he's spoken through a, a wonderful progression of voices over centuries and generations. But in these last days, he has spoken. He has delivered his final infinitive self-disclosure. He's revealed himself in completion. How? Through his son, Jesus he says, I, I want you, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what? To what we have heard. In other words, he doesn't say, listen, guys, I, I know it's hard for you following Jesus. You're, you're struggling. It's getting you in trouble with, with your friends. It doesn't seem very tangible. It doesn't seem very real to you at the moment. And uh, you're, you're feeling the lack of sort of spiritual experience at the moment as well. You're, you're just struggling. Is Jesus really everything? And I, 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 I'm here to write this letter to you to tell you, therefore, that, that I've got some good news stuff for you. I've got something new to help you. This Jesus stuff took you this far, but I'm going to take you this far. He, he helped you quite a long way down the road, but you know what? I've got some special fresh stuff for you. No, no, Jesus is... is <laughs> if, if, you, if you're thinking, I, I've got Jesus, but I feel desperately like there's something more that I need. I need to go further. I need to go beyond Jesus. 
the problem isn't actually with Jesus. The problem ultimately there is with you. The problem is you, you have let go of, you have drifted away from, you fail to pay much closer attention to what you have heard, what you've already heard, what you already were given in Jesus. This Jesus, this Son of God, this precious one, this, this great gift from heaven, he is actually everything you need. He is. And if, if that doesn't seem true, the issue is our blindness. The issue is our failure to grasp. And we do. And so he wants to press them on this. He comes back to them with this as a, a strong uh, exhortation through, through the letter. He'll keep doing it. He'll keep presenting Jesus, presenting Jesus, because there's no, much, there's no one greater. We sing a hymn in this church, that, what gift of grace is Jesus, my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. If you understand the lines of that hymn, just those two lines, it will set you up for life. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not, that's why we sing hymns like that. That's why we don't just sing mindless tunes that don't say anything. You need hymns that say something. And that hymn says so, just in two lines. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Do you understand that in the giving of his son, he was giving everything? And if you don't understand that, it's because you haven't seen or you've let go of or you've drifted or you've become slightly, slightly dull in the way you understand the glory of the Son of God. See, these people were Bible people. They, they loved their Bibles. They loved their Jewish Old Testament and they, they understood it or they thought they did and they were inspired by it, but they had not seen that it's actually a progression. It's pointing to a climax. It's pointing to a champion. It's pointing in all of its dramatic wonder, all of its majesty as a glorious story, which the Bible is, it points to this central, heroic, capstone figure who strides into the drama, strides onto the stage at this late point in the narrative to fulfill all that's gone before and to take the story to its glorious cosmic climax so that all that was lost by our wickedness and sin could be gloriously won back through his gift of himself upon the cross. This book is a magnificent story and it points all to Christ. These guys, they, they knew long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets. You know, we have our, our story, our history, our temple, our prophets, our Torah, our law. We have it all. And the writer's saying, you don't understand. It all points to something even greater. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, in his son. I want us to see the majesty, but we can so easily miss this. You know, I, I've been a Christian since I was a child. You know, for, I guess for 40 years, I've, in some respect, been getting to know the Bible. I remember at once, you know, as a teenager, I got, in my dullness and arrogance, I, I got to the point where I resisted it. I remember my mum would sometimes leave a Bible accidentally in my bedroom. I remember sometimes picking it up and throwing it out. Because I think I, I thought I knew. I thought I knew enough about Jesus. I've seen enough. I know enough. I've grown up in this. Leave me alone. How wrong I was. And I tell you, for decades since, I've been discovering him 
again and again. I never get tired of the discovery. It's always unsearchably new. He is new, not what's beyond him, not outside of him. I don't have to find, say, oh, Jesus is all right, but can we get into this as well? So often the qualms and troubles that we have as a church or as individuals are to do with our, our failure to, to pay much closer attention to what we have already heard. So I call you back again to the Jesus of Scripture. I call you back to his greatness and glory. Otherwise, we, we resemble like the, the child that's kind of you know, unwrapping a Christmas present on the day, you know, gets excited about it. So it's this, all this wrapping is kind of exciting, it's glossy and shiny and, and special. And you're kind of so busy taking the wrapping off, you, you, you're kind of excited watching the child. Do it. When they finally got the wrapping off the present, they walk off holding the wrapping, excited by the, the shiny, noisy, crinkly wrapping. While they leave this kind of boring looking cardboard box with an Xbox inside it on the floor. Because they're distracted by what, what is actually meant to be just the signpost to something greater. And this is true the way we could treat religion or the Bible. But friends, it's true of everything in life, actually. All of creation points to him. All creation, all of creation... <laughs> is made up of clues to him and to his story. It, it always is. It's we that can't see it. But even the way that he got stars to dance at the point of his birth, which drew the attention of wise men from the east who traveled on camels to get across hundreds of miles of desert just to see, just because they understood, they saw in the heavens that creation is moving. Something in creation is drawing attention to something magnificent that's happening on the earth right now. And these three men or so were the only ones on the planet who understood and took it seriously because they knew that creation speaks about something great here. Jesus was like that in the way he dealt with people, people who, who felt the need for certain physical creative fulfilments of their longings. Someone thirsty at a well in John chapter 4. She speaks of her need for refreshment. Jesus says, if you drink the water I give you, the water I give you will become within you a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So if you drink the water I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. He, says, he talks about himself. He said, water, how do you feel when you're thirsty? You're dry, craggy, you, you feel sandpaper in your mouth. You, you want your longing. Maybe you've, you've done a few hours you know, in a squash court or you know, you've done an hour in the gym and you know that sense of bitter thirst. You're just longing deep down. It just feels just like just such tremendous pleasure receiving the refreshment of H2O. And Jesus says, it speaks of me. That whole experience is meant to draw your attention to what uniquely Jesus can do. He can refresh like nobody. We feel hungry for, for carbs, you know, for bread. When, we're, when we, we've been just getting ourselves tired and hungry after hard work or we just not, we've missed a meal and there's a loaf of bread. And Jesus says, I, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. If you, eat my, if you eat me, he's saying, eat me, drink me, receive me. I am everything. All these, these blessings. God makes creation to remind us, to give clues to us about the, the ultimate way that our souls can only be satisfied in his son. To whom all creation points and all of scripture points. Jesus, the centerpiece, the center person on the center stage. And we drift away. We get distracted by trivialities. We get hurt by seasons of confusion. 
and we get stigmatized by a society that hasn't seen what we've seen. And we feel, what's the point? Because we've, we've lost our grasp of him. So he puts before them this vision of Jesus. But not only that, he also warns against dullness. He the very real danger. So this is the second thing. He presents Jesus as the heart of everything, but he also brings a very clear warning. The passage we've read, there's a warning. It comes up, if you read Hebrews, it comes around again and again. There's about four or five different places where the same kind of warning hits you. He keeps saying it in different ways. Because we need warning. And it's an interesting thing to think about, because many would say, well, if, if Jesus is just so great, if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is what the Bible says he is, then why would it be... That, that it's possible to become a Christian, to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, and still be a little bit kind of bored, to still drift like these people are, to still be tempted by, by other trappings and secondary things. How can that be? If Jesus is just so dazzling, then surely we could never stop being dazzled, right? And that's a good question. It's a very good question considering, I mean, logically I can get the point, but the, the, the reality is that the Bible doesn't cover this up. In many, many ways, the Bible makes this plainly the case. People who have met with God, met with God dramatically, can still, even such people, drift. Drift away from such clear perception, from things that you'd think, oh, I'll never forget Jesus after this. I'll never, I'll never doubt him again. I'll never see him as dull again after this. No, it's not true. It's not true. Because why? Well, because ultimately, friends, the human heart the fallen, wicked, selfish, sinful heart that you and I have inherited from the first humans is sadly too wired towards itself and towards a small, shrunk, individually centred view of the universe. We, we are very addicted, very fond of ourselves as the centre of everything and so we have a propensity, a bias that we don't even realise we've got quite often. We're prone to shrink Jesus in our imagination. I mean, you think about it, those wise men coming from the east, they travel from so far, they come up you know, sand-swept and, and, and you know, the camels and peculiar-looking guys, but they say, we've seen a star, there's a star, and, and not far, just a few miles down the road in Bethlehem, literally a, few, a couple of hours walk. He's there, the one that your people have been waiting for for hundreds of years, the Messiah that this whole book predicts. He's here. He's been born in Bethlehem. How many of the religion experts in Jerusalem followed the wise men to Bethlehem that day? Not one. Not one. These were the people that were trained from birth to predict. You know, they knew their Bible. They were the experts. That's why they, the Herod went to them. And they didn't go. They weren't interested. They weren't. You can miss it when it's that close. You can miss Jesus when he's actually pulling you into a miracle. I, great story that makes this point. Peter walking on the water. Maybe you know the story of Jesus walking on the water towards the disciples when on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. Peter, one of the disciples, says, Jesus, call me. I'll walk out to you. And Jesus calls him. Peter's walking on water, on water. Now, you would think, and I would think, if I ever got to walk on water, I'm pretty sure I would never again in a billion years <laughs> have trouble trusting that he's good enough, big enough, loving enough, great enough to look after me and keep me safe in every situation. That I would never, ever have a problem with that ever again because, well, I walked on water. <laughs> Game over. That's not a problem for me. 
No, it was a problem for Peter in seconds. The Bible says he saw the waves and he sank down and cried out, Lord, save me. He was, he was going to drown. This guy, he's literally walking on water. You can be in the midst of the most profound confidence that God is working in your life, you're trusting him, you're experiencing him, but still, friends, susceptible to drift in other parts of your life because you're not actually realising the danger of your eyes drifting away from Jesus and onto waves, onto threats, onto a sense of misalignment with the culture, struggling to fit in with colleagues and friends and family, struggling and feeling, feeling the sound and the, 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 the picture and the noise and all, the, 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 all of the sense of being swirled up in the storm of life distracts us so dramatically that even in the instance of doing a miracle, we're drifting. So surely the writer is right to say, be careful of the dullness that creeps in. Don't drift. Don't let go. Pay more attention, far more, to what you've heard. And then finally, very quickly, he's saying, hold your nerve. Hold your nerve. So first, he presents Jesus as the heart of everything. Secondly, he, he warns against dullness. Thirdly, he said, just said, hold your nerve. Hold, hold. We need that because we... He puts it later in the letter. He says, let's follow Jesus, the one who went outside the camp. Outside the camp. And literally, he's kind of alluding to the fact Jesus was taken outside the city walls to be crucified. And he's saying that's where we, be we belong with the one who went outside the camp. Culturally, socially, we will often face that. We kind of have to go outside. We have to live with that sense of being on the edge Sometimes not feeling welcome. Sometimes our views are just not received. Sometimes our story, our experience. You, want to, you, get, you become a Christian and you go to work and at coffee break you tell everybody about you. you I've getting baptised. Please come to my baptism. And only three of your friends are even interested. And you think, what? why? I don't get it. Why would, not any, why would you want, want to know what's happened to me? You feel, I'm outside the camp. And we can think, oh, something's wrong then. Something's wrong. The world, looks, the world looks more impressive. It's going on its merry way. It doesn't, doesn't pay attention to Jesus. We're stuck. No, 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 no. Hold your nerve. The story's not over. These guys are so impressed with the temple. Jesus had said to them, this temple will not stand one stone upon another. Jesus had said that to them. The very temple they so respected. He said, not one stone will stand upon another. Do you know, after this letter was written, that happened. Literally, the Romans came and to get gold out from the infrastructure, they pulled every stone. Every stone was taken down. That word of the prophecy Jesus brought was fulfilled completely. Why? Because God can do that in a moment. The things in this world that seem so huge and intimidating, the things in this world that make Christians feel so totally alienated and marginalised, the things in this world that make the gospel seem like a timid little whisper in the midst of all the kind of maelstrom of noise, they will not last. They will be gone. God can remove them in a moment. He can re remove kingdoms, nations, ideologies, systems. In a moment, God can do it. He has done it through the ages and he'll do it again because he is bringing in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful, he says later, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's going to shake all things. So hold your nerve. Hold your nerve, friends. In the, you know, do, I, do you believe the Bible? You believe what the Bible says? Don't you know? You, can't, you cannot take the Bible seriously. Can't I? Can't I? I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to. Because of Jesus, I trust him. 
and he will work things out. He, he, so I don't understand how, but I don't believe I'm on the wrong side of history ultimately because I belong to Jesus who is destined to inherit history. So we, we do well to do like Mary. You know, like these, these people are drifting. What did Mary do? Do you remember the way it describes her, her, her thinking after the shepherds came in Luke chapter 2 and described what they'd seen on the hillside with the angels and the choir and the heavenly hosts and they were f- afraid and it's so dramatic. It's this magnificent moment where heaven just seems to... It's like the curtains are removed and these just these shepherds <laughs> of all the people in the universe for God to show up and reveal his majesty to. He chooses some, some despised shepherds on a hillside outside a nothing town called Bethlehem. That's who he goes to. I love it. And they come to Mary and they're kind of still, they're just, oh, it's just overwhelmed. Just, you sure? We told them what had happened. They told Mary about this. Where is this baby? We heard about this. I mean, it's so, the story is so glorious, friends. You need to get to know the story. But what does it say that Mary did? It says that Mary treasured these things in her heart and pondered them. She treasured them in her heart. You have to do that. There's no other way. Either that or you'll drift. You'll just drift. You must pay more attention to what you've heard lest you drift. Be like Mary. Stir, Stir yourself up. Remind yourself of what he's done, who he is, what he said to you. And join us. I'm dead serious. Why would you miss out? Don't be like Herod and his scribes. When I say in the new year, through January and beyond, we will worship, we will gather, the Lord will be here. The presence of God. We as a church getting to be together in his presence. Be like those wise men. Say, I'll do whatever I can. I'll ride a camel to get to the Clarendon Centre. Fine, we'll we'll have a camel park outside. We'll we'll, 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 We'll tie them up. Well, do whatever. To find it, get your babysitter sorted. Get it in your diary. Come, both of you. Don't say, oh, you go up. Get here. Why wouldn't you? Gather. Do it deliberately. Ponder these things in your heart. Like, I don't want to drift. I want to pay more attention to what I've heard. Meet with Jesus. You wouldn't want to miss these priorities. And finally, we come to the table. We come to bread and wine. Let's do that now. Let's come and receive. Let's come to Jesus given for us his body and his blood as we receive bread and wine. Let's expect to receive from him. Let's enjoy him. Let's pray to him. Let's bless one another in the name of the Lord. And then we'll uh, be able to to close our meeting. Let me just pray. Father, I, I, I pray that you would please help us, Lord, away from distractions. Help us away from the appeal of anemic religion or those things that seem more real in this passing age, but are indeed not as real. Help us to see things rightly and to pay more attention to what we've heard as we come and take communion at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.